We start with our heavily burdened health care system in B.C., the system struggling to keep up with demands, the family doctor shortage, some walk-in clinics closing down, even some hospital emergency rooms temporarily shutting down. Got Dr. Kevin McLeod standing by. Have a listen to this here first. Now, what about private health care? Are more people using it? Do more people want a private option? Look what's happening here now with TELUS Health. Have you used this TELUS Health system? Wow, they're being reviewed by the province now. Are they breaking the rules? Have a listen to this report here now from Global News reporter Kamal Karamali. The physicians are bailing out to go to private care systems and they're leaving the rest of us in the lurch. Mark Winston's uh, family Mark doctor Winston left to go to TELUS Health, a private fee-based medical provider. He offered to keep Winston as a patient, but for a price. If we wanted to continue um, having him as our doctor, we'd have to enroll in their Life Plus system. TELUS Health's Life Plus program claims to provide preventative care, but for the first year, it would cost $4,600 and $3,600 per year after that. Now the Medical Services Commission of BC has stepped in. The province's medical watchdog is reviewing whether TELUS Health is allowing patients to jump the queue in a two-tier medical system, which would be against the law. All right, let's discuss now with my guest, Dr. Kevin McLeod, internal medicine specialist on the North Shore. I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Kevin, thanks for coming on today. Mike, thanks for having me. Hopefully you can hear me. I'm, I think I'm like two floors down in some sort of old museum or something. No, I'm not. <laughs> oh, the museum. Oh, we're going to go to the museum right off the bat. Now, we, we got you loud and clear here. Now, Kevin, let me ask you this. TELUS Health, I actually used TELUS Health a few weeks ago for the first time. I was unable to get into my usual walk-in clinic. So, okay, I tried this TELUS Health, and, you know, it worked fine. And they I, they didn't charge me for it because it was I was just getting a prescription renewed, so it was just covered under the normal Medicare. But the controversy, though, right, is this... Uh, health plus or life plus system they charge 4600 bucks for it in the first year what do you think of this is that going too far yeah so there's there's two sort of broad options with with telus and you know i'm i don't speak for telus or anything like that but you know they've got their yeah. online thing that you would use to get a prescription renewed there are some problems with that because you know to get a renewal it's fine do it over over the phone or whatever but, but what if you need something more where you got to be seen in person it, it does become a problem and certainly in my world as a specialist you know i, I used to get referrals for people who were on multiple blood pressure drugs, really complicated. You know, I might get a referral from TELUS Health now saying, can you see this person? They may have high blood pressure. They checked it on their sister's cuff, but hey, we can't really see them in person, so we're sending them to you. That costs you a lot more as a taxpayer. The, the second part is with, with this Life Plus system, and it, it's been around for a long time. It was, it was a different um, company before that I think TELUS bought out. And, and really right. what you, you do is pay a yearly fee. Um, I think it's 4600 bucks or something initially, and then, you know, right. 3000 a year. But you think a family of four, you're paying over 10000 a year to be part of this club that essentially gives you the traditional family doctor, right? So you've got somebody who's available. I think you get 30 or 60-minute appointments and these sorts of things. So you, you are paying for a service that in days gone by we all sort of had. And... And the, the problem with that is most people with pretty complicated medical issues don't 
in any way near have the funds to to do that kind of a, a service. Um, you know, and, and then the people who get out of the system, because um, a lot of people say, hey, we need a competing private option. I can see that side of it. The problem is we have such a human resource problem that, you know, as you take somebody out of the system and put them in a private system, well, the, the patient's left are seeing sort of fewer docs or getting spread between fewer docs. You know, I, I often use the example, I, I've got a very busy practice on the North Shore and I probably have something like 8,000 patients, which is just very, very, very busy. My patients will know that. They say it's a busy place. You know, I could very easily say, you know what, I'm only going to have 100 patients and you, you have to pay $10,000 a year to be part of my club. I would never do this, by the way. I think it's completely yeah. unethical. But, right. but you know, if I, if I do that and have have those people come, you know, those hundred people come and pay me 10,000 a year. Well, I only have to look after a hundred patients. I'm getting more money, but what happens to the other 7,900 patients? You know, where do they yeah. go? Right. And it's, it's not that there's another doctor next door to me who's like, Hey, Hey, I'll take you. So you, right. you do carve people off. And, and the other piece of it, you know, is if, if you've paid, I mean, put yourself in the, the, shoes of the family who's paid the 10,000, right? right. You, know, you want something for that money. Hey, I sure. want something. And, and what do you want? You're going to want to have preventative investigations. Hey, I want this scan done right away. I paid this money. I want these lab tests. But who pays for all of that? Most people don't realize that doesn't come out of the $4,600. That's all the medical service plan. So your taxes are paying for any blood test that's ordered by that corporate program, um, any scan that gets ordered. And, and because that doctor has so much more time, what are they doing? They're phoning people like me to say, Kevin, I got this guy, you got to fit him in, can you fit him in this week, right? So, yeah. so you do sort of queue jump and get investigations and things that other people wouldn't necessarily get, yet right. it's yours and my tax dollars paying for that. Okay, I think you raised some awesome points. Um, let me put this to you, like... TELUS, of course, is denying that they're breaking any rules here with this Life Plus thing. They say, look, you know, we, we are not fast-tracking people. We are opposed to that. We're not breaking any rules. This is, this is preventative care. It's optional care. We're not charging people for medically necessary services. But if you sign up for this, l- let's say you, you join the club and you get access to uh, some sort of cancer screening test that you might not uh, otherwise have had access to. You get bad news, and and you need you need cancer treatment. Now, you, does that mean like you're potentially getting cancer treatment before someone else who might not have received that test because they're not in the club? You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. So I mean that you know I mean tell us to be honest. I think they're a pretty good corporate citizen. I don't. Think yeah. they wanted to wade into this controversy. I'm sure there's people sitting around a table saying, "Whoa, God, why have we bought into this?" Right? Because they're probably not actually making a huge amount of money from it. It's not gazillions of people going and doing it. But you're right. Like if you get that screening test earlier, you know your treatment starts earlier. That treatment, right? You know, irrespective, is going to be provided through the BC Cancer Agency. But you know, the problem we run into now, where people don't have a family doc. Where the heck do they go and get their pap test? Where do they where do they even get their stool test to screen for colon cancer? Who's actually asking them the question saying, Hey, you know, your dad had colon cancer at fifty six, you should get a colonoscopy. Who's putting in that referral to the gastroenterologist? So 
when we talk about a million British Columbians without a family doc and probably another million who are going to walk-in clinics and other things and don't have a true family doc in the, the sense of the term, all of that screening falls by the wayside. And, and I see that more and more because patients are presenting late. Um, you know, and when somebody presents late, the outcome is worse. The, if you just look at it from a dollar and cents point of view, the cost to care is dramatically higher because you know, chances are they've landed in hospital or something else. You know, you, you can't really even get into a walk-in clinic now. Often, and I can only really speak for the North Shore, but you know, often the urgent care center is closed because they can't staff it. Right. right. And so then people are landing in emergency. Well, what, what does the poor guy or, or doctor do in right. emergency and nurses do? They're, they're trying to get people through. But when it's an eight hour wait, everything's just so rushed. Nobody's okay. talking about preventive stuff. All right. Welcome back. My guest is Dr. Kevin McLeod. Just before we take a couple of calls, Kevin, on yesterday's show, we talked about vaccine mandates that are some of the ones that are still in place in Canada. And I spoke to Duncan D about it. He's a former senior executive at Air Canada, and we were talking about some of the airport and travel delays and backlogs we're seeing right now, and I asked him about those vaccine mandates. Here's what he said to me, then I'll get your thoughts. Do you think that Canada should drop the vaccine mandate for federally for federal employees, including airport employees? Like, Would that, would that help the situation? Look, it wouldn't hurt. Um, the federal vaccine mandate is a, a two-dose mandate where the second dose is a year old. So, you know, this is total COVID theater. There's no reason for them to continue it. But, you know, for some reason, these guys want to continue it. Dr. Kevin McLeod, do you agree with them? Do you think it's time to drop those mandates now? Yeah, you know, to be honest, Mike, this has become political when it really shouldn't have been. If, if you really look at the data, um, you know, vaccine works well to prevent you from landing in hospital. It's highly ineffective at preventing you from getting COVID and preventing you from spreading COVID. In fact, the latest data that came out at the end of April from the UK experience, you know, if you've got a vaccine, two doses of the vaccine and a booster, by about 15 to 20 weeks after that booster was given, you have no protection from actually getting COVID. And and you see that in the real world, right? Like how many of us are vaccinated and got COVID? I've had COVID a couple of times. Wow. You know, when I am vaccinated. So it's not, it, it's very, very poor at preventing you from getting it. It's good at preventing you from landing in hospital. Well, well the whole right. point of these mandates was to say, let's try to get everybody vaccinated. And we've got 90 plus percent. And, and let's try to prevent spread. But now that we sort of see with the current variants that, oh, it doesn't really prevent spread, then what are we doing? Like, you know, I had a lady in my office yesterday who, and she won't mind me saying this, you know, she had one dose of the vaccine. She, really can't get a second one. She had a reaction to the first one. And, you know, her mother in a care home was like 94, had had four doses of the vaccine. She's not allowed to go to that care home because she hasn't had her second dose yet. All these people are going into the care home who had two doses more than a year ago who are in no way better protected. But we sort of do this theater of saying, well, you know, you got this card and all. It, it, it actually doesn't make any sense. And it makes people sort of lose faith in the public health system like let's just tell it like it is we're Mm. all adults here and and we don't need these now right we we need the vaccine to prevent people from getting into hospital but we don't need the mandate now it's not helping anything okay let's squeeze a couple calls in here i i I think that's a fascinating perspective on mike and white rock hi mike go ahead well thank you to your guest i appreciate the upfront and uh the honesty it's quite refreshing to finally hear that i I agree Um, 
my my thoughts are and personal experience i know a number of friends and family that work in uh, the healthcare field and i've had some personal experience in there and the general consensus and again this is a general statement is if you are dying our country's healthcare system is one of the best in the world if you need preventative it's the system is broken what uh, what does your guest think about that? What do you, what do you think of that, Doctor yeah, McLeod? I mean, that's, that's probably a fair assessment, right? I mean, you know, if you if you land in hospital and you need really urgent care because you're in the middle of having a heart attack or something else, our care is actually for the most part really good, right? But the care to kind of prevent you from having that heart attack in the first place, we're not great at that, and and that isn't actually just not enough doctors. I mean, that's our lifestyles and other things that we do. So, sure, we always talk about prevention, but we. we we haven't really done a fabulous job at that. And, and again, as people lose their family dog or they're so rushed with their family dog, you got two minutes, you got to get the hell out of here. The waiting is full. You know, when, when are you sitting down and actually talking about, wow, did you know that the stress you're under is actually contributing as much to having a heart attack or stroke as if you were a smoker? And most people don't realize that we don't really address any of those issues because there's no time because we're all so stressed. Let's uh, squeeze in one more call in the minute and a half we got left. Debbie and Coquitlam. Debbie, you got about 30 seconds here, okay? Go ahead. No problem. Thank you very much for taking my call. I have a question for your guest. My sister at one point in time worked for Metasys and Coltman, the actual companies that tell us bought up in order to get themselves in the position that they are right now. And I'm curious as to why, when it was Metasys and Copen, nobody looked at this sideways. But now that TELUS has weighed in on it, everybody's looking at the entrails. I'll hang up and wait for your guest's reply. Thank you. Kevin, Kevin you got 30 seconds here. Well, to be honest, I, I was always bothered by it because we lost family docs years ago to Copeman um, before TELUS bought it out, and it, it, it always irked me. I think it's just become even more of an issue now because you know, there's so many people without a family doc, um, but it's always been a problem. Your guest is right. I mean, it's been a problem for, for years. It's it's not new. It's just in the news. So the politicians are taking some action on it, but it's been around for a long time. Tell us didn't start this. Thank you for coming on today. It's always awesome to have you here. I appreciate it. Anytime, Mike. See you later. Oh, okay. Okay, let's talk about lawn and order in the city of Vancouver now. Have you noticed that some medians and boulevards in the city of Vancouver have long overgrown grass? Why is Vancouver City Hall not mowing their own lawn? This issue has blown up on social media the last few days as Vancouver residents complain about uncut grass on city-owned property. One of the complaints on Twitter comes from Peter Meisner running for Vancouver City Council. He posts some photos he received from residents in Yaletown. Overgrown medians with grass growing full of weeds. Why is the city not cutting their own lawn? Let's find out. Let's check with uh, Peter Meisner running for Vancouver City Council. He's a West End resident. Peter, thanks for coming on. Good morning, Mike. Okay, tell me your concerns here. Yeah, so um, this is something I noticed last month as well uh, on Pacific Boulevard. The, the median in between the road, it has a sidewalk and a bit of grass around the edges. And it's, you know, super overgrown. The grass is a couple feet high. There's, it's full of weeds. Uh, I don't recall ever seeing it like that before. And heard from, you know, several neighbors sent me photos, um, you know, asking, you know, hey, what's going on? Like, why, why are they not maintaining these, uh, these spaces anymore? 
and I put that out on Twitter, a little bit of lawn and order, and uh, that just blew up. I had, um, you know, over 100,000 engagements on that, 6,000 impressions, and a variety of opinions, lots of people um, talking about biodiversity, of course, uh, but also residents asking, you know, what's going on? Like, why is this? They're not aware of this new strategy from the park board. Right. Now, and as you pointed out, like, apparently it is a strategy. I mean, this is this is deliberate. So the city is saying that these are actually urban meadows, roadside meadows that are being deliberately allowed to grow uh, to support, you know, bee population that are important, that are important in our ecosystem. It can lower city temperatures. It can promote water retention in the summertime. And they're That's supposed right. they're supposed to be maintained. I mean, they're not cutting the lawn, the grass, but there's there's supposed to be city staff coming by to like check out, you know, check them out, make sure there's no like you know hypodermic needles in there or whatever. Yeah, and you know in Vancouver that's going to be hard to keep on top of. So you are right. Um, the park board is piloting this this year. It's called roadside meadows, which I think is a yeah. pretty creative term. Uh, I think the issue is is that it wasn't communicated well to residents. Nobody that I've talked to is even aware of this pilot program. There's no signage. There's been no mail, like mail outs to people in the neighborhood. So nobody knows what's going on, right? And I think there's lots of challenges um, with this long grass in medians, for example. People take their dogs out, especially downtown in an urban environment where there's not necessarily a lot of park space or dog parks to go to. And they don't necessarily want to take their dogs into long grass because there could be needles, as you mentioned. There could yeah. be feces. Uh, it's a breeding ground for fleas, potentially. Um, so there's just a lot of work that needs to be done there on communication. And also, you got to wonder, in the summer, with the heat dome that we had last year, could this be a fire hazard with people throwing cigarette butts out their car windows into these medians with long grass? Um, there's just a lot of so, concerns. Yeah. So, so do you think, therefore, that it's a communications problem, that the city simply hasn't explained this properly to residents, or do you think that it's an experiment that should, that should be cancelled? Like, you know, they should start mowing the lawn again, cutting the grass. Yeah, I think it's both, to be honest with you. I support increasing biodiversity throughout the city. Back in 2014, the Park Board had a rewilding strategy um, talking about important areas around the city where they want to boost biodiversity. So we're talking about Stanley Park. We're talking about, you know, Kitts Beach, Van Dusen Gardens. But we're, are we really talking about the median on Pacific Boulevard as an important area for biodiversity? That just seems ridiculous to me. And I think people in Vancouver, you know, they are upset about the state of our city, right? Property taxes have property taxes have gone up 25% over the past four years. There's graffiti everywhere. There's broken windows. People don't necessarily feel safe on the streets. So when they look outside you, and they see an overgrown median, they're yeah. just frustrated, right? They're wondering, do you think okay, it, is this another core service that's not being maintained? And do you think it's? Do you think it looks ugly? I mean, do you know? You know, you, you posted on Twitter that. You know, it leaves a poor impression for people, like for tourists coming in. Do you think tourists will come into Vancouver and go, oh, man, they're not even maintaining their city here? Do you think that's what goes yeah. through people's mind when they see it? I, I, I don't think it looks great, personally, as a, yeah. as a resident, um, but also because I didn't know what the strategy was. And again, it just hasn't been communicated properly to people. And I think, you know, the concerns about uh, people with their dogs and people with children, you know, not necessarily yeah. wanting to let their kids play in these areas are totally legitimate. Okay, Peter, thanks for coming on today with your thoughts My on pleasure. it. My Peter, pleasure. Ma- Peter Meisner, he's a candidate for Vancouver City Council. Let's check in with Michael Weeb now, a current member of Vancouver City Council. Councillor, thank you for coming on. Councillor, can you hear me okay? Yeah. 
Okay, thanks for doing this, Michael. I appreciate it. Uh, you support this program, right? You think the the long grass is deliberate, and you think it's a good thing, correct? Yeah, we're doing 37 hectares across the city, and I think it's time for us to look. I was part of that rewilding in 2014, um, as well as bringing it forward a little bit later on. But the idea that we can have pollinators and reduce the surface temperature that we were seeing with our heat island effect, but also retain a bit of that moisture. Um, you talked about when it gets warm, it's really important that we have longer roots in this grass so we don't prevent issues with fires and others. So I, I am supportive of it. I think that the communication, I appreciate that Peter's put it out there and others as well because it has gone out in social media and I think it's important for people to understand that these changes, why they're happening and the importance of them. Okay, so the concept behind the, the urban meadow or roadside meadow project is, like you mentioned, pollinators. So, like bees, right? You think this is good for, like, it's good bee habitat? Yeah, so it's, I mean, it's not just that. The city of Vancouver is supplementing it by doing these green wells. You're starting to see these water wells, and you're starting to see opportunities for regrowth of indigenous plants that can soak up a lot of the water. We need our natural places to do more natural solutions for the engineering of our city, holding water when it rains to reduce flooding. And so you're going to start to see different ways that we are starting to change the way our streets act. And second, Quebec's a great example. All four corners are different pilots that we're trying to see which one can take as much water, which plants can absorb as much water as possible so that we don't see the flooding we're seeing in our streets because Climate change is coming, and we need to adapt our plants so that they can help us through this issue. What do you say to critics, and you heard Peter Meisner make this point, that he just thinks it looks ugly for visitors coming to the city. They see this long, overgrown grass on city boulevards and medians and go, whoa, the city's not even mowing their own lawn. Like, Do you think people have that reaction? I think that like, education is a big component of this. Some of them look stunning. I mean, I don't know if you've seen some of the meadows and some of the parks with the pollinators and all the poppies and all the beautiful flowers. Like, it's pretty remarkable when done right. Um, they do get cut because it is maintained. It's not um, just grown wild. Like, we do have expert staff that are making sure that it's done in a way that is effective. Um, and I think education is a big component of it. I think the idea that we continue to have the colonial boulevard of grass and multiple trees change. And I think we're going to start to see them rewild with indigenous plants. And most parks you'll see around the trees, they're not cutting because they're actually making sure that those help. Um, we are, the climate's really putting pressure up here in Vancouver and keeping some of that wild grass around our tree bases is keeping our trees alive. And I think that people in the city of Vancouver that I hear when tourists come here, they're like, I can't believe how green your city is and how many trees you have. For me, what we can do to keep these going and keep our canopy and keep our air fresh, and um, I think education is a big component. And I think as more of them in, and as we put the signage out, more people will get behind okay. it. But change isn't easy, and I think that this is a a big component of how we've looked at traditional urban spaces and parks. Councillor, thank you for coming on today. I appreciate it. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. All right, talking about Vancouver's overgrown grass on city-owned medians. Some people think it looks ugly. There are weeds in there. Some people worry there could be needles in there. It could be hazardous to kids or pets. The city, though, is saying this is deliberate. They're they're cutting. They're not cutting the grass deliberately. It's part of the roadside meadow program in Vancouver. Let the grass grow on the medians. Good for the bees and insects. 
keeping city temperatures down, water moisture retention. Lots of calls on this. Rob in Vancouver. Hi, Rob. What do you think? I think it's a joke. You know what? It's happening all over the city. I see it downtown. I see it in Surrey. Surrey's a freaking disaster. You see these two and three foot little strips between sidewalks and curbs. You see boulevards. It's just lack of maintenance. You have people running these departments that have no idea or history on what it's supposed to look like. And then you get these department heads, engineers, or do whatever, landscape architects. They design it wrong, and then they design it, and then it never gets maintained. It's an absolute disgrace. You don't think it's good for the birds and the bees? Well, well, how can it be? It's, it's, just a, it's just grass. I mean, it's not even grass where cars are buzzing by you or buggies or people. They're not hanging out there. They're hanging out in parks and forests and in the trees. <laughs> Come on, it's on the ground. That's where, you, that's where people throw their cigarette butts and dogs have yeah. a pee. Okay, Rob, thanks Take for the man. call. Thank you, Rob. Yvonne in Swasson. Hi, Yvonne, what do you think? I have an extremely different view from that. I think it's a brilliant idea. I'm driving into Vancouver right now, and I've seen a number of the boulevards. But okay. just as an example, we have an off-leash dog park in Tawasson that they've let the grass grow long. And now, three, four years into that, we've got lupins and poppies. Like, it's just wonderful that you hear the bees buzzing. I think it's just incredibly good for the environment. It's going to make the, the soil much better absorbing water it's going to help the tree health i think it's just good for the environment and all i think we need to do is i remember when i first moved to canada and coming into vancouver and they had the sign saying nuclear free zone which is i realize aging me but i felt a fair chunk of pride that we're an area where we try to be nuclear free i think we should have some signage as you know if they're worried about tourists has yeah. some signage as you drive in. To just, explain it. only, what, five or six major artilleries just mentioning yeah. that we're trying to be a greener city and have this happening. Okay. And I think five years from now, we'll be thrilled with the results. Thank you, Yvonne, for the call. You both sides of it there on the open line. Rick on the line in Vancouver. Hi, Rick, what do you think? Hi. <laughs> that last caller, she lives in Tawasson. What is Tawasson doing? They let an overgrown, uh, their dog park overgrown. How about outside her house? Is that okay? How about the regular park outside in her neighborhood? Could that be three feet high and she's okay with that? This, let's be honest here. This all came about a few years back when they were trying to save money. It was a cost-saving issue. It had nothing to do with uh, bees or anything else. It wasn't. <laughs> Do you and think it? Do you think with, it's just? Do you think it's just like a cover story to say, "Oh, it's an urban meadow, so we don't have to cut the grass anymore"? <laughs> okay. It is. Yeah. That's exactly what it is. That's when it first came out. That's what it is. Now these guys jump all over it. Save the money. Get out of the things that aren't our responsibility as Vancouver taxpayers, and use that oh. money to cut the grass. This is ridiculous. Okay, Rick, thank you for the call. Keep phoning me on this. 604-280-9898 is the number. Star 9898 on your cell. Chris in Vancouver. Hi, Chris, what do you think? Oh, hello. Uh, I think in general it's a very worthwhile thing, but uh, in the process they're blocking sight lines for traffic. I mean, Mm. uh, I put in a complaint the other day to the city uh, coming down 33rd, you, it's three feet high. You, it's turned a safe intersection into a blind corner. Really? There will be accidents. And I think in general, uh, I agree with it, but they've got to look at these traffic sight lines 
and mow them. Okay, so you're saying that the grass has gotten so high there that you can't see the oncoming traffic? Yes. Wow. I'm coming along 33rd. I'm trying to turn left into Queen Elizabeth Park. You're blind. And sometimes people come quite fast along there. You, you oh. can't see the traffic until you stick your nose out. It okay. used to be a clear line of sight. So, you know, they've got to attend to these situations if they're going to pursue this policy. Because, like, in general, I agree. I think it's very creditable uh, policy. Okay. But don't endanger traffic in the process and that's what they've also done and i'm waiting to see if they act on my complaint and chris thank, thank you in- thank thank you for the call chris appreciate it yeah it's tough yeah that's what happened you're driving in an urban meadow donna in vancouver hi donna what do you think I think it's ridiculous, but it's typical of the council and the mayor that runs this city. But anyway, we have to live with it. But no, I don't think uh, the policy is, is worthwhile at all. It's, I think it's a money-saving thing, nothing to do with nature. But that's just my opinion. Do you think it's like, you know, the city saying, well, no, there's actually maintenance going on. They'd send crews uh-huh. around there to make sure there's no needles in there or anything, uh-huh. not buying that? I sure haven't seen anybody around looking at it, but uh, and I okay. drive around the city a lot. But no, I think it's a ridiculous policy, but it's typical of the people that are running the city at the moment. Thank you, Donna. Russ in North Van. Russ, you got like 20 seconds here. Go ahead. <laughs> That's a quick one. Wait, wait till August when all that grass dries out. You've got little piles of kindling everywhere around the city waiting for cigarettes. Oh, oh no. All right. Welcome back. Let's talk about the federal conservative party leadership contest now. This has been a rough and tough campaign. At times, it's gotten pretty nasty, too. But one thing I think is for sure, it sure has been good for conservative party membership roles here. The candidates for the leadership have signed up hundreds of thousands of new conservative party members who will now vote for the next leader. That vote happens in September. Okay, who is in the lead here? Well, Conservative MP Pierre Polyev has certainly attracted a lot of attention. His campaign says they have signed up more than 300,000 new members. How about Jean Charest and his campaign? Well, he says they are poised to win. He says they've had a great campaign. Other candidates also claiming to be on the track to victory here, notably Patrick Brown. All right, let's discuss now with representatives of two of the major campaigns for the conservative leadership based here in British Columbia. Katie Merrifield is a political communications expert. She is a member of Team Pierre Polyev. Very pleased to welcome her. Hi, Katie. Hey, Mike. Happy to be here. Thanks a lot for doing this. Also on the line is Tamara Cronus. Tamara is a human rights lawyer. She's a, a former Conservative Party candidate, and she supports Jean Charest. Hello, Tamara. Hi. Thanks so much for having me. Okay. Thank you to both of you for doing this. Katie, let me go to you first. This has been a pretty wild campaign here. Pierre Polyev, your candidate, seems to be getting a, like a, some of the bigger crowds and a lot of the, most of the attention. Where? How do you feel about the, the campaign as it stands right now? I got to say, I feel amazing, Mike. I think it was, it was historic and unprecedented uh, what this campaign delivered. Uh, as you noted, 311,958 memberships sold across the country, 50,709 here in BC. That has never happened before. 
and of note, 25,000 in Quebec and close to 119,000 uh, in Ontario. So I am just deeply grateful for everyone that has chosen to support Pierre and more importantly, really broaden the base of the Conservative Party. Why do, why do you think he would be a good leader of the party? So I would say my reasons for supporting him aren't particularly unique, and I think that's reflected in the almost 312,000 memberships that his campaign has sold. But, you know, for me personally, um, I like politicians who take taxpayer money seriously and promote individual freedom. I really find it uh, refreshing that Pierre is putting folks like the single mother who can't afford to put food on the table at the forefront of his message. I grew up in Surrey with a single mother on income assistance, and so I know personally and deeply how terrifying it is when prices soar and basic needs become um, unaffordable. Um, I support him because I feel protecting fundamental basics like freedom of speech and individual values are important in a democratic and and free society. And finally, I support him because I value leaders who feel innovation, growth, and productivity come from people and families, not the government. Okay, Tamara Cronus supports Jean Charest. Tamara, give me your thoughts on the Charest campaign, why you support him for the leader of this party. Well, I should start by saying that I also feel fantastic about where we are in the race. Um, We focused on selling memberships across the country and really focused on points. So where what you're seeing with Pierre is you're seeing concentrations um, in, in certain areas. I think we're, um, we focused on points and we're confident that we have um, the distribution of memberships across the country that it's going to take to win, particularly in areas like Quebec, where we really need to expand our base. And in terms of the reason I'm supporting Jean is because he's the leader that has a forward-looking vision for the party. Um, we also feel that we've expanded the base, but we've, we're expanding the base uh, in a direction that's really going to pull votes away from the Liberals. And, um, you know, unlike, I think, some of the other leadership candidates, we've focused on putting really uh, deep and substantive policy ideas uh, out there to, fo- to solve some of the, biz- the, the sort of big domestic challenges that we face uh, as, as we go through. And we do have more ideas to come. But just one example of that is, you know, the focus that we have on supporting autistic families, or, sorry, families with autistic uh, children and, and, and autistic uh, adults in just in terms of developing a national strategy for this, because the patchwork across the country is, is making it that people are, are, are finding that they're forced in some cases to move um, to be able to get the supports that they need. And, you know, one of the reasons why I think that uh, Jean is uniquely posed to, uniquely situated to be able to solve some of these problems is because he really has a deep understanding of federalism. Having been a three-time premier, Having won, you know, um, uh, uh, having having been a, a former leader of this party, um, I think that we're in a position <clears throat> to be able to do the kind of really good, deep work that's going to cause us okay. to be able to to win. Okay, let me ask you both about the times that these two candidates have crossed swords on the campaign trail. I mean, this got pretty personal, pretty nasty at times between Pierre Polyev and and Jean Charest and. I want to get your thoughts on that. Let me play a couple of clips here for you. So here is Jean Charest criticizing Pierre Polia for his support of the, the trucker convoy that we saw a few months back. Listen to this. Here's Charest. Now, Mr. Charest learned about the trucker convoy on CBC, like other liberals, and he misrepresented them. 
that's actually Polyev. Here's, here's Sheree attacking Polyev. Have a listen to this. Everyone knows that Pierre Polyev supported the blockade. And I don't, know, I don't care how much spin you put into it. Here is someone who makes laws and says, I can break laws because I'm above the law. Well, I'm sorry. If you want to be a leader of a party, if you want to sit in the House of Commons and make laws, you have to obey them. Okay, and here's Polyev here returning fire going after Sheree. Have a listen to this. Now, Mr. Sheree learned about the trucker convoy on CBC, like other liberals, and he misrepresented them. He believes I should be cancelled from this leadership race and disqualified, in his words, because I don't share his liberal viewpoint. That is the kind of cancel culture and censorship you would expect from Justin Trudeau, but instead we're getting it from this liberal on this stage. Okay, guys, let me ask your thoughts on this. So, Tamara Cronus, let me go to you first. You support John Charest. What are Canadians to make of the these exchanges that we've heard in this campaign contest? Well, I think this goes to one of the differences between the candidates. I mean, uh, Jean's comment is one of the is, the is the idea that one of the fundamental values of this party is is good government. And and I got to tell you, this is not a um, you know attack on people who are unvaccinated or an attack on people who don't agree with Justin Trudeau's overreach with the Emergencies Act. I mean, I'm a human rights lawyer, and I I represent um, people who have been um, uh, you know, wrongfully dismissed from their jobs because of their vaccination status. But what we're talking about here is a difference in tone. What you hear on the Pierre clip is you hear a lot of name calling. Um, and it's not about the policy. I mean, it, 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 calling Jean Charest a liberal is uh, British Columbians understand better than anybody else um, what it what a what a provincial uh, you know, BC liberal is and what a, what a Quebec liberal is. These are provinces right. without, um, without those parties. And, and Pierre knows that, but he's calling names and he's trying to confuse the issue. And what we're getting at is the idea, the principle, which is what conservatives believe in principles, that if you are making laws, you can't then, you know, wink, wink, nudge, nudge out of the side of your eye and say, you're going to support me so you can break the law. Okay, Katie Merrifield, she supports Pierre Poliev. Katie, your thoughts? Well, I would say it's not unexpected that attacks are flying from all the candidates toward Pierre during this race. He is the front runner, and he's on track to potentially win on the first ballot. So his opponents can continue their attacks, but they aren't resonating, and, and they won't be successful. And I just would like to highlight our membership is not concentrated. It is well distributed across this province and across the country. And I'm happy to share some writing-specific data right now, and would um, if I would encourage uh, Tamara to do the same for her candidate. Like, I'll just pick a couple. Vancouver Center, there was 475 members before the race. We sold 925 or 921 memberships. That's almost double. Cloverdale Langley City, 571 members before the race. We sold 1,175, over double the existing membership. And finally, Nanaimo Ladysmith, 716 members before the race. And we sold 1,425, okay. almost double. So if okay. message is resonating, let's see the proof. Okay, Tamara, so you heard Katie there say that she believes that Pierre Polyev could win this thing on the first ballot. What is your read of it? I mean, if Polyev does not w- do well on the first ballot, does Sheree catch up to him? So, I mean, the, the reality of this is that the only ballot that matters, of course, is the one on Election Day, and there's just yeah. a fundamental difference of opinion here. I mean, we have doubled the party's membership in Quebec. Um, Mm. We have made major inroads 
into um, vote-rich ridings in, in the GTA and in Atlantic Canada um, and here in BC, where it's about the points. And the, the, only numbers that, the only number that matters is 16,901, which is the 30, uh, you know, you know is, the, is, the, is the points that come from dividing the rates, uh, the, the total right. number of points available in this race into two and adding one. And so, you know, Katie can throw a bunch of numbers around. I can throw a bunch of numbers around. The phase of this campaign that we're in right now is the persuasion phase. And this is the yes. chance for people to really think about what the candidates are putting out there. And we're putting out deep and substantive policy positions that uh, will make the lives of Canadians better. And they're threatening to fire people. And, and, and you know, it's all about gatekeepers and and. And, and people they want to get rid of. And we okay. think they've gone far. Okay. The deadline to sign up new members in the Conservative Party to vote for leader, that deadline is passed now. So they've got over 600,000 members who will now vote for the next leader. Who will it be? This is going to be really, really interesting. See what happens here. Bruce on the line in Cash Creek. Hi, Bruce. What do you think? Well, I, what I took away from that conversation was, um, you know, the, the uh, charade advocate going on about name calling. The only thing he called him was a liberal, which is the <laughs> truth, which isn't a slander. He was a liberal cabinet member in Ottawa for years, wasn't he? So, you know, th- this is what the other uh, candidates are having a problem with. He's telling the truth. He's calling a spade a spade, not a shovel, and they don't like that. Okay, well, he he thank you. He was the former liberal premier of Quebec, so that's where uh, his liberal background comes from. Tony in Cloverdale. Hi, Tony. What do you think? Hi. Hi. Can you hear me? Yes, I can. Go ahead. Okay. Uh, Pierre all the way. Pierre for Prime Minister. Okay. Why do you like him? Uh, Fiscal responsibility. Trudeau's government is just devastating to people's economy, to people's livelihoods, to just living day to day, buying groceries, buying gas. Right. Okay, Tony, thank you for that. I think a lot of people are responding to that economic part of it. Mac in Vancouver. Hi, Mac. What do you think? Uh, <clears throat> sorry, excuse me. It's the same thing. I mean, uh, is, is Pierre not still the finance critic? Uh, pardon the ignorance, sir. I think I might have missed that I one. Think but... they, I, I think he stepped down as finance critic when he, when he ran okay. for leadership. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, it's the same thing. You have to run this country like a business, full stop, and stop running it like a giant, bleeding, hard, progressive uh, virtue signaling mess that they're doing. It's ridiculous. You have to run this country like a business. And that's why I'm all for Mr. Poilev as well. And hey, okay. he's got a French last name. Maybe it'll appeal to the province of Quebec. No cynicism intended. Sorry. Thanks. Well, we'll see, we'll see about that. I mean, is French is good. Uh, Charest, of course, former Quebec premier and you heard his campaign say they signed up they signed up a ton of people in quebec james and white rock hi james what do you think hi thanks for taking my call mike i am sick and tired of everybody playing this around ontario and quebec as far as i'm aware there's a couple more provinces in confederation that actually matter to the running in the future of this country than ontario and quebec so why don't people, when they make their arguments, especially about Trey, because nobody loves him out here, right? He, mm-hmm. he, 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 he's a buddy with Trudeau. They all know that. When it comes to the, 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 the policies of, of 
either one of them. I haven't heard either one of them talk about British Columbia's resources, Alberta's resources, Saskatchewan's resources. And right now they got another election in Alberta and both the candidates that are possibly going to win that leadership for the UPC are far right. And they won't have an issue implementing okay. firewalls in that province against the rest of the country. And then what All right, happens James. to the finances for Ontario and Quebec? Thank you, James, for the call. Patricia in Steveston. Hi, Patricia. you got 30 seconds here, okay? Go ahead. Okay. I would not vote Poyer because of his uh, supporting the truckers. Mm. Um, yeah, well, you thought that was going too far, right? I, I certainly did, yeah. 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 And he's trying to backtrack it now, but... Uh, his quote was in the uh, National Post that he was proud of the truckers and that sure. he, he said he stood with them. All right. Welcome back to the show. Uh, here we go now with our wealth tax debate. How about a new tax on excessive corporate profits? That was the pitch this week from federal NDP leader Jagmeet Singh. He says there are some big corporations in Canada who are just raking it in. They are making massive profits. He says what you should do in this situation, tax them, tax them good and redistribute that money. Have a listen to what he had to say here, federal NDP leader Jagmeet Singh. If you're making excess profits off the backs of people in a difficult time when people can't afford to eat, then you have to start paying your fair share and we're gonna redistribute that back to people, meaning families are gonna receive between $500 to $1,000 directly in their pockets with our plan. Okay, so you tax these big corporations, use the money, to give payments to lower income families. You heard him say there are between 500 and a thousand dollars. All right. Let's discuss now with our panel. We've got a great one for you today. Jim Stanford is an economist and director at the Center for Future Work. I'm very pleased to welcome him back. Jim, thanks a lot for coming on today. My pleasure, Mike. Thanks for having me. You bet. Thank you. Philip Cross is with the Fraser Institute. He is a senior fellow there. He's the former chief economist at Statistics Canada. Philip, thank you very much for coming on. My pleasure. Thanks for the invite. All right, gentlemen, thank you to both of you. Jim Stanford, let me go to you first. Jim, what do you think of this idea? An excess profits tax on big companies. Good idea? I think it's a great idea. I think Jug meets uh, 100% on the money with that argument. We've seen this uptick in inflation uh, this year uh, in Canada, and everybody's worried about it as 6.8% year over year. And it's got nothing to do with workers. It's got nothing to do with wages. Wages are growing at 3.3%, less than half as much. And who is it that actually sets those prices? It's businesses that set those prices. And yeah, some of their costs have gone up, not their labor costs, some of their other costs, but their profit margins have gone up even faster. So the latest uh, data from the first quarter of 2022 that Statistics Canada just put out uh, showed an 11% jump in after-tax corporate profits compared to just three months earlier. 11% oh. raise in three months. Uh, they've never made so much money. They've never had such a high share of GDP, and it comes directly from your wallet and my wallet. Would you say that, Jim, would you say that the rich are getting richer in Canada? We've also heard calls from not only Jagmeet Singh, but others calling for a wealth tax on the super rich in Canada. You agree with that too, right? 
Well, some people have done very well. There's no doubt during the pandemic, while you know, while so many people were suffering and frightened uh, for their health, uh, uh, share markets hit all-time highs. The wealth of billionaires uh, expanded. So I, I think there's a, a point there about the individuals, but I think there's an even stronger point, Mike, about the corporations. They are the ones who set the prices for our groceries, our gasoline, our housing. Uh, their profits uh, have swollen enormously. And other countries, uh, Great Britain has just imposed an excess profits tax on the oil and gas sector for exactly this reason. I, last I checked, anyways, <laughs> Great Britain was ruled by a conservative. So this shouldn't really be a, a radical idea. It seems just uh, fair. These companies are doing very well at a moment of great, okay. great challenge for average Canadians. Okay, Philip Cross from the Fraser Institute. What do you think? Well, first of all, I think we have to get our terms straight here. We've been using interchangeably the idea of wealth taxes and uh, corporate income tax. They're two quite different things. Um, But, you know, the idea that corporations are behind inflation shows that, you know, there's a real misunderstanding of what causes inflation. It's not like corporations after, remember, for decades, inflation's been low. For the last decade, inflation was consistently below what the Bank of Canada forecast. What do people think, that all of a sudden corporations woke up a year ago and said, oh my God, we have all this pricing power, let's really sock it to uh, our our customers out there. Inflation originates in excessive monetary and fiscal stimulus during the pandemic. The only way to correct it is by unwinding that stimulus, as the Bank of Canada is now doing, raising corporate taxes and increasing costs isn't going to do anything to help that. Jim Stanford, what do you say to that? Well, uh, in terms of going after some of this enormous surplus that corporations are receiving, uh, an excess corporate profit tax is uh, actually sensible in terms of addressing the problem that that Philip raises. Uh, Some of the inflation is due to strong spending power in Canada. Most of it isn't. Most of it's due to supply chain shocks and uh, the energy uh, price uh, spike, etc., etc. But some of it is due to strong spending power. Here's a way to go after it. The people getting the biggest share of that, above and beyond the cost increases, uh, are corporations, and an excess profit tax would uh, take some of that surplus and um, and uh, and put it back into uh, the pockets of people who who need it. And uh, that that's a way of bringing down some of the excess demand that's much fairer than just throwing people out of work and potentially causing a recession, which is what we're looking at now. Hey, Jim, how do you define excess profits? Like, businesses yeah. are in business to make money, to make a profit, and if you have a great year and your profits are up, that is typically a cause for celebration for companies or their shareholders. Like, how do you, what is excess profit? Like, what's normal profit and what is excess profit? Right. Uh, that's a fair question, Mike. And uh, the, the folks in Britain are, are, are encountering that right now as they design the measure. We've already done that in Canada. Remember, the federal budget imposed an excess profit tax on the banks uh, in the current budget, a 15% one-time profit tax. Uh, on the banks that made so much money during the pandemic, in part thanks to government help and very low interest rates. So uh, it can be done. You can look at the long-run average rate of return and uh, calculate how much of it is way, way, way above that. In the new oil and gas industry, this is where I think this should start, uh, it's going to be easy. You've got companies that have doubled and tripled their profits this year. It's got nothing to do with efficiencies and innovation. It's got everything to do with higher prices set on the global market, 
but costs of production in Canada that are stagnant. Okay. And they're paying okay. out most of that. They're paying that out in dividends and share buybacks. So they're not even reinvesting it. That's a sure sign that they've got more money than they know what to do with. Philip Cross, your thoughts? Well, you know, you can't have it both ways. If, if you think inflation is largely driven by supply shocks in this world, then what you're saying is it's increased costs. It's a drop in supply, increased costs that are driving prices higher. I do not see how taxing investors, who in the long run are the ones that are going to increase supply, is going to help that situation. Uh, so there, there seems to be an internal contradiction here. But the other problem is, as, as you just discussed, what is excess? I mean, oil and gas, investing in oil and gas is very risky these days. It was almost suicidal during the pandemic. I remember at one point, oil prices were headed towards zero. Only a fool would have invested. So what do we do with people who took the risks and invested during that period? We turn around and say, oh, by the way, since I paid off for you, we're going to tax you. I think most Canadians would understand that that's that's max of unfairness. Hey, Philip, what do you think would the impact would be on the economy if governments were to follow some of these calls, jack up taxes on successful, big successful corporations, brought in a wealth tax on, on the on the super wealthy in Canada? Do you think that would be would be bad for the economy? I think economists like taxes that raise a lot of money without distorting a lot of behavior. Wealth taxes are almost the worst tax you can think of. They raise very little money uh, for technical reasons. They're usually designed to be about 1%, 2 3% at the most. Uh, and they have a large impact on investing behavior. So, uh, you know, I think Canadians generally are overtaxed. But, you know, of all the taxes I would raise, wealth taxes would be pretty near the, the bottom of my list. Right. How about a, cor- a big corporate tax hike on wealthy corporations? What kind of impact would that have, do you think? Well, I don't know why we would single out wealthy corporations. You know, why is, why is being a success in this country something that should be penalized? Uh, mm. You know, we have a corporate income tax. I don't know if, if usually if an area, uh, an industry generates exceptionally high profits in the short term, like oil and gas, it's because it's very risky. Do we really want to penalize people for taking risks in, the, in our economy? Just the opposite. Mm. I think Canadians are too risk adverse. We don't have, my number one problem with wealthy people in this country is we don't have enough of them. I don't know why in, in <laughs> introducing taxes that would penalize this behavior would make things better off. Jim Stanford, what do you say to that? Well, uh, our federal corporate income tax rate uh, now, Mike, is 15%. Uh, it used to be 28%. And about a quarter century ago, we had governments that followed uh, Phillips' logic here and said, well, we want to incentivize companies to invest and innovate and take risks, so we'll cut the rate almost in half from 28% to 15%. And it hasn't worked. Business investment as a share of GDP has declined over this time. So we're, we're incentivizing them more, and they're doing less. So even without this current surge in profits because of the, of the current inflation, we should rethink that. But particularly in an oil and gas situation, is it risk that is being paid off by the fact that their profits have tripled? No. It's the fact that the world oil price shot up and their costs of production in Canada uh, haven't changed. That doesn't seem like right. you know, the sort of risk that we, should, uh, that we should encourage. This is a sign of uh, customers in Canada paying 
36% more for gasoline that was made in Canada from Canadian oil uh, with no change at all. That isn't the sort of innovation or uh, um, uh, investment or risk-taking that we should encourage. That's just a ripoff. All right, welcome back to the show. We're talking taxes with my guest, Jim Stanford, Center for Future Work, Philip Cross from the Fraser Institute. Lots of calls. Josh in Vancouver. Hi, Josh. What do you think? Hey, guys. How you doing? I'm good. Go ahead. Uh, so I, I just wanted to get this clear with Philip. Uh, you're, it sounds like you're advocating not taxing the rich or uh, companies that have reaped the benefits from the pandemic era, correct? Of course they should pay their fair share of taxes. We're talking about here, though, an excess tax, whatever excess means, that somehow they're not paying their fair share. We have to load up some more taxes on them. Right, yeah. So my my question would be to you then, um, because I'm in in favor of taxing, but to be fair, uh, who would tax them? Uh, Would it be the lower tax, uh, sorry, lower income individuals or companies, the ones that have basically barely scraped by or have went faulty but like who who would you the who other than the people that have by people i mean companies and wealthy individuals um would you tax more than those that have made the most okay okay philip i i I guess i guess his point is government has to get revenue from somewhere so if we're not going to tax these big corporations but do you feel the tax the tax levels in Canada right now are, are fair or do you think they should be lowered well I say it's hard to argue that Canadians are uh, are not paying enough tax I mean my biggest no. problem is we pay a lot of tax and we don't get a lot in return for it that's my real problem if we got if we had great roads and a great health care system and if our kids were coming out of schools really smart and competitive in the world stage, I'd have a lot less problem with taxes. But given we're getting such lousy services, I have a lot of troubles going to Canadians and saying, oh, by the way, you're not paying enough tax. Uh, Mm. So I'm reluctant to raise taxes on anybody. But uh, a broader point, and this is going to be hard to, to follow, but stay with me on this one. Corporations, at the end of the day, don't pay taxes. Only human beings pay taxes. When you raise taxes on a corporation, one of three things is going to happen. They're going to raise prices to customers. They're going to cut the wages of of their employees, or they're going to reduce the dividends they pay to shareholders. Somebody is going to pay for that, not the corporation. And most research shows, in fact, most tax increases to corporations are passed on to higher prices to people or lower wages. So the average guy ends up getting it in the neck anyway. So this idea that that we can dump all the costs of the pandemic on a few rich people, it's a fantasy. Jim Stanford, what do you say to that? Well, I have to challenge uh, Philip's uh, assertion that we don't get a lot for the taxes that we pay. It's funny to mention healthcare as we're coming out of, of a pandemic where our healthcare system for sure was stretched to the limit, but we have a strong public healthcare system and a strong public health infrastructure that saved tens of thousands of lives. Our death rate from COVID was one quarter per capita as it was in the United States just south of us where, guess what, they pay a lot less in taxes. So 
Uh, I absolutely reject the idea we don't get anything for our taxes. We should definitely try to improve the quality and efficiency and scale of public services, but those public services saved our asses during the pandemic, if I can use that technical term, Mike. Uh, okay. In terms of corporations, yeah, Philip, yeah. right. It is the, the corporation is owned by people, and right now the owners of those oil and gas companies are getting billions. You've had a company like uh, Canadian Natural Resources. Their uh, profit tripled $3 billion in the last three months. What are they spending it on? They're buying back shares from the company's shareholders, which is a way of putting that money directly into the pockets of those shareholders. Uh, and that's proof that they actually have more money than they know what to do with, so they're buying their own shares back. Okay. Philip Cross, do you want to respond to that? Oh, I would love to. Okay. Uh, our Canadian healthcare system did not save our asses, as Jim put it, during the pandemic. What saved our asses was the willingness of Canadians to wear masks and to get vaccinated. That was the big difference between Canada and the U.S. The problem was we had to get vaccinated and wear masks because our healthcare system uh, was uh, so overwhelmed that, uh, you know, we just didn't have the hospital capacity. We had to introduce these other measures. But give Canadians credit for this. Not, not our health care system. Not everything good in our society comes from government.